One day, after Albert Einstein had moved into his home at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, the telephone rang in the office of the dean of Princeton Graduate School. The voice at the other end inquired, may I speak with Dean Eisenhardt, please? Advised that the dean was not in, the voice continued, perhaps you will tell me where Dr. Einstein lives. Uh, the secretary explained that she couldn't do this since Dr. Einstein wished to have his privacy respected. The voice on the phone dropped to a bare whisper, please don't tell anybody, but I am Dr. Einstein. I'm on my way home and have forgotten where my house is. Forgetfulness. Uh, it can be very embarrassing sometimes. Dear Alice, wrote the young man, I'm getting so forgetful that while I was proposing to you last night, I forgot whether you said yes or no. <laughs> Dear Bob, Alice replied, so good to hear from you. I knew I said no to someone last night, but I'd forgotten just who it was. <laughs> One of the great scourges of God's people throughout the ages has been the affliction of forgetfulness, what we might think of as spiritual amnesia. Over and over again, God admonished his people, remember, remember, don't forget, don't forget. That's why God gave the Israelites the Sabbath, the feast days, the, the tassels on their garments, other things like that to remember. As believers in the New Testament age, we're also susceptible to failure in this area. And I, I think there's a lot of reasons why we forget. Sometimes it, it might be feigned forgetfulness. Rationalization. Ever notice how selective your son or daughter's memory can be at times? You know, maybe something due at the office. Uh, sometimes it's distractions. We just get sidetracked. Uh, we get preoccupied with all the other things of our lives. It might even be a hardened heart. We refuse to remember on a conscious level. Jesus often spoke about people's hardened hearts. I think for a lot of us and a lot of the times it's simply overwhelming circumstances. Our minds are on overload because of, of what's going on in our lives. All the things that consume us and we don't remember. Even if they're important things. There are two things that I believe we often forget. And when we forget, our spiritual perspective is affected and we lose the anchor points of our spiritual understanding. The first is that our sinful condition is far worse than we could ever imagine. Apart from Christ, we are utterly lost. This is the significance of the word depravity. Depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be. It means that you're as bad off as you could be. In addition, having come to Christ and experienced his forgiveness, we sometimes forget that we are still fallen people living in a fallen world. People whose entire beings are infected and affected by the actions and consequences of sin. Here's the second thing we forget. 
God's grace is far greater than we could ever hope for. When we remember the first, we are overwhelmed by the second. And God, by his free choice, exercises grace, and he saves us when we respond to him in faith, and he gives us eternal life. Paul puts these two truths together when he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2. And he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That is a bummer, any way you look at it. But he goes on to say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now today in our study in Mark's Gospel, and we're coming to chapter 8, uh, we see a bad case of spiritual amnesia. There are two groups of people that are in focus in this passage. One is the disciples, and the other is a group called the Pharisees. But before we examine their situation, we need to look at the incident that sets up these scenarios. So if you have your Bible and want to make your way to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, if you're grabbing a Bible in the seat back in front of you, page 1073, Mark chapter 8. If you'd follow along, I'm going to read starting at verse 1. Look at the setup here of the scene. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before him. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 40,000 people, and he sent them away. Um, this is the second time that Jesus has fed a multitude of people, where he's performed a miracle to address the physical needs of the people who were there. Uh, now, this is a different event than that recorded in chapter 6 that Pastor Chris dealt with last week. Uh, we don't know the time gap. No doubt there's some time that has passed between these two. And look at the differences in these two. I have a little chart here to put up. The feeding of the 5,000 takes place in Galilee near Bethsaida. Uh, the feeding of the 4,000, we're told here, is near Decapolis, a loose confederation of ten free cities. One on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, the other on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. In the 5,000, it's predominantly Jews. Here, it's mostly Gentiles. In the first one, the crowd's been with Jesus for one day. Here now, they've been with him for three days. The text tells us in the feeding of the 5,000, there were five loaves and two fish. Here with the feeding of the 4,000, seven loaves and a few fish. Twelve baskets of food left over, one for each of the disciples in the feeding of the 5,000. Here, there are seven baskets of food left over. 
It's interesting, even the word in the Greek language of the New Testament for the baskets is a different word in the two instances. In the first one, it's just a small wicker lunch basket. Here, it's a basket that's large. It's big enough to hold a man. It's the same word used to describe the basket that the Apostle Paul was led in, put into and led over the wall in Acts chapter 9. So two very different uh, scenarios and yet the same effect that's there. In both instances, we see that the motivating force behind Jesus' actions was his compassion for the people. He flat out, cared for people. Jesus had this tremendous capacity for compassion. This is a gut level response to seeing people in need. And here's the great thing about the story. The people generally who benefit from this miracle are Gentiles. This incident follows right after Jesus has encounters with two Gentiles, with a Syrophoenician woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit, and the other is a man who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. But in both cases, Jesus responded to expressions of faith and he healed their afflictions. Jesus was crossing what David Garland calls purity boundaries and social boundaries. And he did all the time in his ministry. So here they are out in a deserted place for three days, and Jesus expresses to the disciples his concern for the people and for their lack of food. What is their response? Lord, where's the nearest Safeway? Where are we going to get enough cold cuts to feed these people? How are we going to do this? Now listen. Didn't anybody think? Didn't anybody dare to ask, Lord, Will you do it again? Now, I don't know. Are we that much different than those disciples at times? I mean, we, you know, we see God answer prayer. We, we see that he meets a need that we have. He provides his peace and his courage in some difficult situation. And then we get in another fix. And it's like, God, what am I going to do? I have no hope. Ah, spiritual amnesia. How quickly we forget. Jesus returns to the west side of the Sea of Galilee is met by a group of religious leaders uh, from the parties of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Go to the text, Mark 8, pick up at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek the sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. This is almost like a parenthesis in the action, the main action, which is with the disciples. Uh, and yet this event is significant for their sake, part of his teaching and his training here of the twelve. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came out to Jesus for the purpose of arguing with him. And as we've seen before, these are the religious police. They might have come for many reasons. You know, one is they, they just want to inquire as to what Jesus is doing and why. What was the authority? What was his authority for doing these things that have been reported? And where did he get this authority from? 
Second, they remain concerned, I think, about the influence that this itinerant rabbi is having on the people. These are people that they felt they should be leading spiritually. And as you read the gospel accounts, it's hard not to see professional jealousy coming out with the religious leaders of Israel. But I think the main reason that they're there is to seek to trap Jesus. And so they ask him for a sign. Wessel writes that, quote, the word used here denotes an outward compelling proof of divine authority. What the Pharisees were asking for was more proof than Jesus' miracle afforded. Jesus resolutely refused the request for such a sign because it arose out of unbelief. So they asked for a sign from heaven. The phrase here refers to a particular sign that they're looking for. Uh, th this, is, this is a, a heavenly sign, a, a sign that will have some look into an, uh, an apocalyptic future. Now, Jesus is going to talk later about those kinds of signs with his disciples near the end of his earthly life and ministry. But here, he does not provide the sign. And look at the motive behind their request. Mark says they sought a sign from heaven to test him. To test him. There are two different words used in the Greek New Testament that are often translated test. One usually means to test for the purpose of approving, a displaying as approved or examined. So when the Bible speaks of the testing of our faith, that's the word that's used. God's purpose, that by his grace we meet the standards that are specified. When Ford Motor Company tests the car, they don't do it for the purpose of showing that it fails all the tests. It's the opposite. They, they, they do it to intend to show that the car conforms to all the specifications. It meets all the requirements. It passes all the tests. And that's how God tests us. The other word used in the New Testament means to tempt. And that's the word that's used here in Mark 8 to describe the motive of the Pharisees. Uh, they sought to tempt Jesus. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Mark 1.13. Recall there, Mark tells us that Jesus was taken into the wilderness under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And then Mark says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And the same demand that's being made here by Satan is being made by the Pharisees. Prove yourself. Prove yourself. You know, this is a trap we can fall into today ourselves if we're not careful. You know, Jesus, prove yourself, and then I will trust. But Jesus says, trust, and then I will prove myself. Now, this request for a sign is too late for the Pharisees. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he patiently explained his authority. But now he refuses to answer their question because they're plotting to get rid of him. They rejected the evidence that he provided, and so Jesus refuses to give them any more evidence. Luke's Gospel um, records a story that Jesus told about a rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember it? Uh, the, the rich man with no saving faith died and went to Hades, which was the place of torment in the Old Testament. 
Uh, Lazarus, who must have been a believer, died and went to Abraham's bosom. It's the place for the Old Testament believing that have died. The rich man begged Abraham to send someone to the home of his five brothers to, to warn them about that place of torment. And then Jesus continues with the story. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he that is a rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The Pharisees had all the evidence they needed to know about Jesus. Now, because Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, he doesn't include some of the other words that Jesus said at this time. Matthew, who is writing to Jews, adds this into his account. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be a stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What was this sign that the Pharisees should have understood, these Jews? It was the sign of Jonah. It was death, burial, resurrection. What a tragic scene this was. People who should have been ready to trust. They had so much information, so much attesting evidence. But I think it illustrates that it's seldom an intellectual problem that people have in rejecting Christ. For many today, it's a moral problem or just a choice of unbelief. No amount of evidence could sway them to trust in Christ. And here's a perfect picture of that in the lives of these Pharisees. Well, the focus shifts back to the disciples. We're back in Mark chapter 8, verse 13. He left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? Now this is the third boat scene in Mark's gospel. In chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus calmed the storm and rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith. In chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, he came to them walking on the water, scaring them out of their wits. Here's a description in that instance. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, 
And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This third incident finds the disciples arguing because they forgot to bring food along. And once again, Jesus has some harsh words for them. And he says to them, as they cross the sea, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In the Bible, leaven is often a symbol of evil. In Galatians chapter 5, it's a picture of false doctrine, in particular the doctrine of legalism. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses it to describe the consequences of unjudged sin in the church. <coughs> an unwillingness to exercise church discipline against a believer living in sin that was poisoning the church. And now we have another picture. In his gospel account, Luke records the following. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This was at the heart of the Pharisees' problem. They thought they were spiritual. They thought that they were okay with God. They were in a right relationship with him. And they put on this outward appearance of righteousness, but inside they were filled with unrighteousness. And Jesus takes them to task in Matthew's Gospel. We have this instance where Jesus is just slamming the Pharisees with these woes. Here's one example from chapter 23 of Matthew. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus seems to be warning them that it's easy to fall into the trap of the Pharisees to have an unbelieving heart and yet covered up with hypocrisy. Now, what are these guys doing in the boat? They're having a discussion about who forgot to bring food. What's their problem? The bread of life is in the boat with them. That's their problem. God was going to take care of them. In the feeding of the 5,000 in John's account, uh, John includes a lengthy teaching by Jesus after that miracle. And in there he makes this astounding statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus was speaking about um, his life, his body. You know, from the beginning of Jesus' earthly life all the way to its end, we see this connection to bread. He was born in Bethlehem. The word means house of bread or city of bread. Um, in the upper room shortly before his betrayal, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, take and eat which broken for you. But these men, these disciples, the ones closest to Jesus, failed to understand. Now, was it that they couldn't understand? 
Or is it that they didn't understand? Or is it that they were being kept from understanding? We really don't know. The text doesn't indicate. But Jesus, seeing their lack of understanding, takes them through a checklist. He starts with a mind check. Stop and think. Use your mind. Don't you understand? Then there's a heart check. What's the condition of your heart? Is it hardened so that you cannot see? Now, in one sense, this condition of the disciples is going to persist up through the resurrection. And when the Holy Spirit invades their lives, he softens their heart and he illumines their understanding so now they can see everything and go, aha, now I see, now I understand. And he takes them through a sight check. Don't you see? Think about these guys. Of all people, they had ringside seats for all that Jesus was doing. I mean, they were up close and personal. They were on the front rows to observe the life and the miracles of their master. But seeing, they did not see. They couldn't get past the physical. Someone has wisely observed, eyes that look are common, eyes that see are rare. And isn't that true today? If you found it true at times, maybe in your own spiritual experience, you have eyes to see, but you fail to see. To see God's goodness, God's greatness, God's faithfulness, God's guidance, God's discipline, whatever. Last, he takes them through a memory check. Can't you remember? I think he's wanting them to Google in their mind God's word and his faithful word works on their behalf. Now, before talking about some applications, I just want to make one more observation. In spite of Jesus' exasperation with the disciples, he doesn't give up on them. Do you see that? He doesn't give up on them. He is patient with them, and he will keep instructing them to the very end. Aren't you glad that he deals with us the same way today that he did then we fail. We talked about that. You know, we are infected with sin, the choices that we make, but he doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. Well, how do we guard against spiritual amnesia? What can we do to avoid this disease? Let me just suggest three things to you. Number one is rehearse God's blessings in your life. Uh, there's a song that goes like this. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Oh, we forget, don't we? We forget the blessings. I think this is the same sentiment we see with King David. When in Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms, he writes this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Don't forget. Remember them. Rehearse them in your mind. 
Second, build monuments of remembrance of God's works. There's a story that goes all the way back to the Old Testament book of Joshua. Remember the people are camped on the east bank of the Jordan. Now they're ready to cross over. And so the Ark of the Covenant is taken before them and the waters part. They walk across on dry land. And then Joshua has been told by God to have one person from each of the tribes of Israel go back into the dry riverbed, pick up a stone. I don't think these were little stones like this. You know, pick up a boulder and carry it to the other side and then build an altar. And they do that. But the reason is so that in years to come, when your children see these stones and they will ask you, what are these stones? You tell them about the faithful God, the powerful God, the great and mighty God who took you into the promised land. Now, how do we do it today? I don't recommend you go out into the Potomac and, well, good luck. Um, you know, but build mind, if it helps, you know, keep a list of answered prayers. Write in a journal. Do, do something if that helps you to remember and to recall what God has done in your life. The, stirring the memory of the grace of God within you. Lastly, build your faith on the track record of God in your life. Faith is like a muscle. It grows with exercise. In particular, your trust, your, your, your faith, your willingness to trust God will grow as you recount what God has done. And then apply that knowledge to whatever situation you're in when you are tempted to waver in faith. A patient once explained to a psychiatrist that he was always forgetting things. What shall I do, he asked. The doctor advised, pay me in advance. Build your faith in advance of trials that'll come because they surely will. Fill the storehouse of your mind with the word of God, the works of God, so that you will be able to stand firm and, and trust God when the difficulties of life come your way. May we have eyes that not only look, but eyes that see. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you have put the Spirit your spirit within us to seal us to the day of redemption, to illuminate our understanding, but also to bring to remembrance the things that you've said and things that you've done. Lord, would you help us to remember your goodness and your greatness, your faithfulness, your love, your mercy, your compassion, your holiness, your justice, your righteousness. Would you help us to remember the writings of Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? That there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Would you remind us of these great truths, Father, that we might not faint when we face difficulties in our lives. Might we truly be quick to see and quick to believe, quick to trust. Lord, thank you so much for your word that instructs us in the way we should live, that tells us about your great love for us, and your love for this world in which we live. And may we just continue to walk faithfully with you in humbleness, in integrity. Thank you for the grace that comes to us because of Christ, in whose name I pray.